I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Billy Binion is an associate editor at Reason Magazine, where he writes about criminal justice and government accountability. He has been published in Newsweek, the San Francisco Chronicle, Huffington Post, the Saturday Evening Post, and the Washington Examiner, among other publications. And his work has been cited by the New York Times, The Atlantic, National Review, Fox News, and CNN. Prior to his career in journalism, he worked as a contractor at NATO. Billy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your work, I think it's important for us to understand it within the context of where it's published. Reason Magazine is the leading libertarian publication, I think, in the world. And Reason also has a YouTube channel and three ongoing podcasts, as well as their monthly Soho Forum debates, which is a libertarian-themed debate series. Some of the recent debates it's hosted, just for our audience, include, will electric cars disappoint environmentalists? And should libertarians support school choice? To set the stage for our broader conversation about the justice system and government malfeasance, can you give us a primer on what libertarianism is as a political philosophy? I think there's actually a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to what libertarianism is. I remember when I was living in D.C., I had a roommate who was one of my good friends who said something like, I thought they were just like Republicans, but nice to gay people or something like that. (laughs) That is not accurate, although I don't blame people for feeling that way because the two most high profile, quote unquote, libertarians in government, Rand Paul and Thomas Massey, are Republicans who just really don't like war, essentially. And I don't mean that as a knock. But libertarianism, I would say, is radically limited government across the board. So yes, there are some conservative, what people would typically think of as conservative, especially when it comes to economic views, light touch regulation, that sort of thing. But it also means limited government in the context of immigration, not trusting the federal government to set arbitrary immigration caps. And then for someone like me, limited government is very important to what I write about, which is a criminal justice system that is fair, where the people who are running it, the people who have monopoly on force and power are held accountable. And that's not exactly the system we have today. But I think it often surprises people when they find out that I'm libertarian because I write about an issue that has come to be understood as very left-leaning. I don't really see it through a partisan lens, but something that is really important to me across the board, like I said, is making sure the government is both responsible, accountable, and limited. And the reason the last part I think is really important to me and just to libertarianism at large is because the philosophy understands that if you don't like large government, an all-powerful government, when your ideological foes have the keys to the White House, then you also have to apply that principle consistently, if that makes sense. It often confuses me when people on the left We'll say, you know, oh, I'm all for big government. But then, of course, when a Republican is in the White House, that is not how they feel. And vice versa. Republicans are often for big government, too. They just like to spend money and expand government in different ways socially. And they love spending money, lots of money on the military, that sort of thing. So I would just say it applies that principle across the board, which I think is really important. I think your principles have to be applied consistently. You know, I didn't intend this, but now looking at some of our recent episodes, including with Greg Lukianoff from Fire or Kat Rosenfield, and now you, Billy, I almost think that this could be called like discussing hypocrisy series, because I think to your point about everyone likes a lot of government power when it's being used for their purposes. I think similarly, you talk about something like freedom of religion, and you might get evangelical Christians who want the Bible read in schools, and they cite something like the First Amendment, and then you're like, okay, what about the Quran? And they're like, well, no, no, that's not what we mean. Or something like freedom of speech, which you're seeing the hypocrisy there in regards to what's been taking place recently at Harvard and elsewhere, where for the longest time, I think probably the last decade, if you were really pro-free speech in an almost absolutist sense, you were categorized as being on the right. But I was telling friends of mine, I'm like, just wait for the shoe to drop, because when the left starts complaining about free speech, it's going to be the right that's going to start wanting to institute speech codes. And of course, we're seeing that play out now. I find that it's very difficult, and I'm sympathetic to this because I'm not immune to it, for people to believe they have principles when, in fact, they really just have convenient beliefs that can move depending on what's happening in society. First Amendment law is a particularly good example of why I became so disenchanted with both parties and why I'm not a fan of the Libertarian Party. I should say that the actual political party itself, I'm talking about the philosophy and the ideology. 
But the reason why I was attracted to it and do think it is superior to what binary choices that were offered is because, especially when you look at something like First Amendment Law, the history of that movement, the free speech movement, is fascinating because the people who were pro-free speech about 50 years ago were people on the hard left who wanted to protest. I think it really exploded at UC Berkeley protesting the Vietnam War. And a lot of conservative professors back when academia actually had a lot of conservative professors didn't want to indulge that. And then, of course, the pendulum swung the other way and the left kind of won a lot of culture war battles. So then the right was like, okay, we're all about free speech. And that has been dissolving for a while. You see people like Ron DeSantis, whose basically entire platform is culture war and standing up against things like drag queens and whatever, which, to be honest, I just don't think the average American voter cares about. They care about how they're going to feed their families and all that, which is arguably more important. I think we can see that in the polls. Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly. I think it's an interesting lesson that I don't think he'll learn it. But I hope that people look at that and say, "Okay, we can't just sacrifice our principles when it's politically expedient. People aren't even buying what he's selling. I hope it was worth it. Yeah, I think it's a very human thing to be all in support of principles like free speech when you are weak culturally and institutionally. And then, of course, You kind of want to toss them aside when you're powerful. How did you come to identify as a libertarian yourself? What was the inciting incident? Was there a defining moment that exposed you to this political way of thinking? Or was it a gradual drip of libertarian content or something else? So I would say a little bit of both. I always was kind of that person who was fiscally a little more conservative. I never really understood how we could be spending money we don't have. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to me. Like in college, one of the things I poured a lot of my time into, I went to UVA and I tutored inmates at the local jail. And so that was something that kind of opened my eyes to a political issue that has become obviously very important to me in my career. I'll say this, I grew up in a Christian right-leaning family. So that was kind of the foundation I had skewing more towards the right. But as I got older, it didn't make sense to me and I couldn't seem to understand and reconcile That you would be, for instance, Republicans talk a lot about limited and or I guess they don't talk about limited government as much anymore, but they still talk about accountable government, making sure that our teachers unions are a big punching bag on the right now. And I'm no fan of teachers unions, but I never understood why all of those principles seemed to evaporate when we were talking about law enforcement, because they have so much power. And arguably, if you're party, the Republican Party claims the party is based on the founders and liberty. There is no more dramatic a deprivation of liberty than going to prison. And I'm not saying that we should abolish prisons by any stretch of the imagination. But I am saying that we vest law enforcement with arguably the most power of any government official. I would say the prosecutor is probably the most powerful official in government. If you can make it past the police encounter. Right. And for some reason, a lot of people on the right talk about having accountable government and the old guard of Republican politics talking about restrained limited government, it just all disappeared. And that never made sense to me. So that was always in the back of my head as I got involved in the criminal justice world. But then I actually used to be a performer. I majored in voice and worked for a couple of years in performing arts. And it was my lifelong dream. I didn't end up liking it like I thought I would. So after I had an identity crisis, I went into journalism, or I I wanted to go into journalism, so I started looking at fellowships. I feel like some people who are listening are really going to roll their eyes at this. But I found a journalism fellowship where they outlined all the things that they stood for ideologically. And it was like law enforcement accountability, free speech, against crony capitalism, that kind of thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, these people are saying all the things I believe. When I say crony capitalism, I mean the government giving handouts to preferred companies, that sort of thing. That has always bothered me. And it was the Koch Network. I actually did not know who they were at the time, which just shows you uh, I was just way more steeped in performing than politics. And I looked at them and was like, oh, wow, the Koch Foundation, they must be a really liberal group, (laughs) which is funny. But I would say they are liberal in the old sense of the term, which is like the original classical liberalism espoused by the founders. And I know that they are lampooned and a caricature in our culture, but they stand for a lot of things that your average left-leaning person would be like, oh, yeah, I really am down with that. So I did a fellowship with them for a year and then did a fellowship with Reason when I was 27. And I've been there for five years now. I've never done a fellowship with either Reason or the Koch brothers. But in my 20s, you could say I went through my big libertarian phase. I remember 
when I first heard Ron Paul speak during the Republican debates all the way back in 2007, and I had never heard anyone by that point, Republican or Democrat, speak so forcefully against going to war before. I came of age during the Iraq war in the early 2000s, and Democrats and Republicans at the time were all some variation of pro-war with a few exceptions. Right. Yeah. What is that crazy? There was a vote on whether or not they should go to war. And it was like one person voted not to. Yes. Yes. I'm blanking on her name, but it was so yeah, it was a female or a Democrat and she's been like totally vindicated. 100% vindicated. Yeah. And so hearing someone speak so forcefully, speaking of Ron Paul, against the Patriot Act, against the Iraq war and for civil liberties, for ending drug prohibition, it was like blowing my mind. This was around the same time that I read Ain't Nobody's Business If You Do, The Absurdity of Consensual Crimes in Our Free Country by Peter McWilliams, a book which I guess could best be summed up as why making consensual acts between adults illegal is an absurd overreach by a government that purports to value freedom. And for me, I couldn't disentangle this moment of my political life from what came immediately before it, which was losing my Christian faith. And so once I no longer believed in God, and that belief was kind of a defining part of my young life, it just became a radical shift for me. The idea of anything having a say over how I acted or what I did within the boundaries of my own consensual decision making became like anathema. So libertarianism for me in my mid-20s was appealing on a deep level because the same way that I felt about it wasn't a religion's place to tell society what individuals should or should not do. It was not the government's either. But as I grew older, I kind of moderated on my libertarian viewpoints. And I personally feel that libertarianism is left wanting if you try and apply it to every realm of how society functions just personally. I don't think any one political philosophy holds up in all situations. So in your view, Billy, are there any places where libertarianism comes up short for you? Anywhere that you personally diverge from it in how you want to see America governed? So I think that this still can be compatible with libertarianism, but I think the loudest voices have not done a good job explaining how. And I think some of the things we're seeing about urban disorder can still be compatible with libertarianism. For instance, if we want to decriminalize drugs so that people aren't jailed for their addiction, that's a view that I support. But I also don't think that means that American cities have to turn into shanty towns. Like, I don't think that means that we can't regulate open drug use and open air drug markets. I know that there would be some libertarians that would be like, okay, statist. But obviously, I'm not someone who's advocating for some super carceral approach. But I do think when you look at other places, like particularly in Europe, that have decriminalized drugs, it still came with a carrot and a stick. And I'm comfortable instituting something like that. Like I was walking home last time. I'm in Dallas, so it's not like Los Angeles where I used to live. It's no San Francisco. Yeah. Right, right, right. And I walked over some <laughs> needles. Or I mean, I don't think that... Those two things have to go hand in hand. So I think I am more comfortable than some with that sort of, like I said, carrot and stick approach. And then I would also say there are some libertarians that would want there to be absolutely zero welfare state. I don't think that has to be the one libertarian view. I do think that if you have a welfare state, it should come with incentives. I don't think it should be the kind of thing where it's like, oh, I can't get a job because then I'll lose my welfare. I don't think that's healthy. But I also don't think we need to pull the rug out from the people who are struggling the most in society. There's this idea, and I understand why it's prevalent, that like libertarianism equals chaos. It's just a free for all. Anything goes with no rules, no laws. And again, I would not advocate researching the Libertarian Party because that can lead you there. It's just a bunch of Internet edgelords. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of your major viewpoints is just because we have the freedom to do something doesn't necessarily mean culturally we should. I'm thinking of one particular Christmas photo of Thomas Massey and his family. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is so funny. That was the first time I ever went viral. So for people who are not aware, Thomas Massey two years ago had that very cringeworthy photo where he gave like his seven-year-old an AR-15. And they're all just sitting around the Christmas tree holding their huge guns and smiling. And I just did not expect it to get... And at the time, I didn't really even have a following. But I just said something like, I say this as a libertarian... Guns are not like a cute fashion accessory. They're killing machines. And I think stuff like this is really silly. And he responded and tagged my employer and said he wanted the donors to stop donating so they couldn't pay my salary, whatever. But how you described it is a perfect way to put how I feel about a lot of libertinism. For instance, a big part of libertarianism, we're talking about drug decriminalization or not jailing people for prostitution. 
I wish that people who subscribe to the same ideology I do would be a little more vocal. That doesn't mean that we have to celebrate those things. And a lot of people take offense to that, but I don't think that prostitution is a healthy way to make money. But I also don't think that you should be jailed for it. I don't think that's a healthy way to address why some people would turn to prostitution. And same thing with drug use. I'm not saying like, hey, let's all get high on heroin. You know what I mean? I'm saying it's hard to address addiction when you're just putting people in prison for it, especially because in prison, a lot of people still get drugs because prisons are an awful place run by a lot of really corrupt prison guards who use contraband often as a way to keep order and get favors and that kind of thing. And I know that really shocks people, but there's a lot of data on that. And so if we're actually trying to fix the problem of why are people addicted to drugs, then prison often is not going to be a good solution. But yeah, I don't think that means that these things need to be glorified. You know, there's that professor who talks about how he microdoses on heroin and that's good. And I wholeheartedly disagree. So I do think there is an important distinction that I wish more people would make, that there is a difference between culture and the law. It's strange how as a society, and perhaps we've always been this way, I don't know, I only have a few decades of experience living in the United States, but it feels like we've drifted from a culture of, I disapprove of what you say, but will defend to the death your right to say it, to I approve of the right for you to do or say what you want, and I also have to condone it and celebrate it. And those are like two very different things, because one is a question of liberty. We should be free to do these things without government interference. And the other one is, if I support that you can have this right, it means I must support your exercising of the right. I think about the Thomas Massey gun photo the same way I think about when I see someone with a celebrating Dr. Fauci shirt. I don't have a comment on really whether someone should be able to own a gun or whether someone's a fan of Anthony Fauci. That's fine. Do what you want to do. But I think that either rights or views become like celebrated identity markers is just a strange way for a society to live. I absolutely agree. And the reason the Thomas Massey picture is a particularly good example in my life is because the reason I, by far the writer that writes the most about the importance of self-defense big supporter. I wrote a lot in support of Kyle Rittenhouse. Not that I think he's like some great dude, but I thought he should be acquitted. And I thought that was the right decision. And ironically, all of that coverage came two weeks before that photo where I was like, Thomas Massey, you're being a clown. I got so many messages where it was like, oh my gosh, a libertarian who doesn't support gun rights. And that's not what I said. I just don't think that it's like a Kate Spade purse. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with owning a gun. If I had a kid, I wouldn't give them an AR-15 and be like, smile, that's just funny and cute. That's not funny to me. Let's talk about civil forfeiture, otherwise known as civil asset forfeiture, a topic that you've covered extensively and one that I am quite passionate about, but until today, I've never had anyone on the podcast to talk about it. So as a primer, what is it and what is the steel man slash best case argument for why it's necessary and then how is it abused? The practice varies by different states. But in general, what it does is it allows law enforcement to seize assets from people if they suspect the person is using that asset in furtherance of a crime. So they can seize money, they can seize cars. If they merely suspect someone of misusing that asset in furtherance of criminal activity. So I would say the argument in favor that police use is that it is meant to hamstring and paralyze criminal activities. So let's say you have like a drug kingpin, you want to take his money so that his criminal drug enterprise is kneecapped. But the way it works in practice, there are just some really horrible stories because there's very little due process involved with it. Often you don't even need a criminal charge, much less a conviction. So the police can essentially just initiate forfeiture proceedings without actually having to prove in court that someone did something wrong. And that's because it's a civil action. So there were two examples out of Alabama recently, and their case ended up going to the Supreme Court. But there were two women in Alabama. They don't know each other, two different stories, but they both lent their cars to someone. In one case, it was a woman who lent her car to her son who was pulled over and found with weed, and police seized the car, her car. She wasn't even suspected of wrongdoing, but because they said, oh, there's weed in the car, it's ours. The second one, 
she lent her car to a friend who was running an errand who was pulled over and found with meth, I think. And they seized the car, even though once again, she was not suspected, much less charged or convicted of any criminal activity. It took both well over a year to even get in front of a judge to plead their case. And that is a feature, not a bug. Governments specifically deprive people of due process because they want to discourage people from getting their stuff back. Because in a lot of states, I think it's 24 states, the District of Columbia and the federal government, law enforcement keeps 95 to 100 percent of the assets they seize. And then the next rung, which there are several states, are 80 to 95 percent. And I say this because what that means is there is an enormous profit incentive for law enforcement to then want to seize people's stuff because it pads their budgets. And they spend it sometimes in, I would say, comical ways. It's not funny, but you have to laugh so you don't cry. There was a report that came out in Philadelphia where they were spending it on uniform embroidery. They satisfied someone's parking ticket. Like, it can be very corrupt. And there's a huge perverse incentive then for it to be less about safety and more about just, oh, what good stuff can we get? One example that's stuck in my mind from a John Oliver segment on this topic A DA's office in Massachusetts used forfeiture money to buy their own Zamboni. Doesn't surprise me at all. There was another one in Montgomery County, Texas. Police bought kegs of beer and a margarita machine with money they seized. Right. If you take their reasoning at face value, they're trying to hamstring criminal activity. Okay, that doesn't comport with reality. For instance, New Mexico abolished civil forfeiture. It's very much in the minority in that sense. And they have seen no change in crime because the fact of the matter is, you know, if you have a drug kingpin, you seize his money, he's going to go to prison. If and when he gets out, the fact that you took his money, if he wants to start selling drugs again, I mean, that's not going to stop him. So this has become not about keeping people safe, but padding law enforcement budgets. I want to read part of a definition of civil forfeiture straight from Wikipedia because of how sort of absurd it sounds. Quote, Whilst civil procedure, as opposed to criminal procedure, generally involves a dispute between two private citizens, civil forfeiture involves a dispute between law enforcement and property, such as a pile of cash or a house or a boat, such that the thing is suspected of being involved in a crime, end quote. How can a dispute, Billy, be between law enforcement and an inanimate object, especially if the owner of said object is never charged with a crime? Yeah, that's an interesting way to phrase it. But I think it really speaks to, I'm not sure who wrote that, but I think it speaks to the complete lack of due process that these civil forfeiture defendants have, because it sometimes can be a years long process just to get into a court to say, okay, this is wrong that they took my stuff. So it doesn't really become about law enforcement squaring off with a defendant in a speedy way. It's just, they seize the stuff and then there's a very low barrier to officially forfeit it. When I say officially forfeit it, I mean complete the process of this is no longer your property, sir, and it is now the government's property. I can give you another example. There was a woman who I've written about in Detroit, and Detroit is absolutely notorious for their civil forfeiture program, who she dated a man who was accused by police of being a petty drug offender. I believe she was with him in the car twice when they pulled her over, and they seized both of her cars over the span of a few months. She was never suspected of any drug crimes. I don't even think he was arrested in conjunction with those two stops. No drug paraphernalia was found in her car. One car she gave up on trying to get back because it was such a long process, but with the second one, she was like, I cannot lose my second car, so she spent at least over a year Because the hurdles that Detroit has put in place, you can't even get before a judge before you have three meetings with prosecutors where prosecutors try to offer you a deal to buy your own stuff back. And she was like, I can't afford that. I can't afford to buy my car back. But before you can get in front of a judge, you have to complete three of those conferences, which are done during the workday. And if you miss one of them, you forfeit your stuff. It sounds like a joke. And like I said, that kind of crazy labyrinth that governments put people through to try to get their stuff back is done by design because they are trying to discourage people from getting their things back. I guarantee you the government did not feel, this woman's name is Stephanie Wilson, the government did not feel that by taking her cars that they were making people safer because if that were the case, they wouldn't have offered 
to let her buy it back if they really thought that it was at the center of this criminal enterprise. They wanted her money. That example is so insane because take it one step further. Imagine that you pull someone over and they have a gun on their person and you think the gun is about to be used or has been used in a crime. And then a few months later, you say, well, if you'd like to buy the gun back, you can. You're like, wait, I thought that you thought I was going to kill someone with this gun. Why are you offering to let me buy it back? Right. But it really doesn't have anything to do with safety. I'm not someone who's like, abolish the police. We need law enforcement. But this is not an example of a law enforcement tactic that is having any effect at all, statistically, on safety and crime. The only effect noticeably that it's having is that law enforcement is getting a lot richer and spending it on stupid stuff like flat screen TVs. Yeah, the way that incentives can create perversion within law enforcement, you go to like Ferguson, Missouri, and they were incentivized to give speeding tickets and parking tickets to citizens as a way to bloat their budgets, right? Because they thought they weren't getting enough funding from state and local governments. So they were trying to plump up their budgets that way. When it's really an issue of if you think that you need more money for your police department, that's totally fine. But you should go through the normal channels rather than have to basically abuse what maybe is a justifiable process in order to get more money for whether those things are additional police cars or margarita machines. I think you should have to argue for those in public because it's ultimately the public through their voting and through who they elect who is funding you. And one offshoot of this, Billy, which I also know that you've written about, it takes me back to a conversation I had with Joanne Goldblum and Colleen Shaddix. They are the authors of Broken America, Seeing, Understanding, and Ending U.S. Poverty. And like a recurring theme there is just how often expensive it is to be poor. And when you're poor, especially when you interact with law enforcement and the government, you can get yourself into this hole where it's basically impossible to get out because of fines that are just stacking on top of fines. If your car gets seized and you're a working class mother or it's your only mode of transportation to a job that's 20 miles away, if it gets seized and you're not charged with anything, especially, you can no longer make it to your job. And so you get fired from your job. And so then the police come to you and they say, hey, would you like to buy your car back? You don't even have funds to do that because they took your car from you in the first place. Right. That's the perfect segue into the next point I wanted to make about people like Stephanie Wilson is that not only was she never suspected of a crime, but if law enforcement would like to claim that they were making people's lives better, they were making the community safer, whatever. Think about if you live in a sprawling city, I live in Dallas, without a car, I have no way to get around. Same when I lived in L.A. She's a single mom who had both of her cars taken and she was a nursing student. She wasn't some hedge fund manager making a bunch of money. She was a single mom who's trying to do the best for her family, trying to be a nurse, and you take away her ability to get to work. It's absolutely life ruining. Just to give people a kind of view of how massive this operation, to put it lightly, is between 2001 and 2017, which I think is the most recent data I was able to find. I don't know if you have newer data, Billy. The federal government alone, not including state and local departments, has seized over $2.5 billion of cash, just cash from people who were not actually charged with anything. This figure doesn't include non-cash assets like property. To give one more instance to really hammer this home to people, one instance of civil forfeiture that I came across, Philadelphia police suspected that a 22-year-old was selling $40 of heroin out of his parents' home, so they seized his parents' house. And that doesn't even surprise me. Any excuse that you can have to say a crime was maybe done in the vicinity of this object, so it's ours. I don't even think a lot of law enforcement really beats around the bush about it. I wrote a feature on civil forfeiture over the summer, and I found notes from this seminar in 2012 where law enforcement was getting trained on how to do civil forfeiture. And he was recorded. But this guy came and was like, make sure you go after the cars. The nicer, the better. We love flat screen TV. I mean, now all TVs are flat screen, so that sounds so stupid saying. But like at the time, not the case. They were like, go after the flat screen TVs. I mean, it's really brazen. And we've talked about how I work at a libertarian magazine. But when I write about this issue, I really am trying to talk to everyone. I think that this is something that the left, the right, and everyone in between in some sort of heterodox way can agree with. And they might speak different languages in the way they talk about it. Like the left might see it as a social justice cause and the right might see it as limited government run amok or government that should be limited and that is obviously not limited in this case. Or if you're part of the new Republican Party that favors big government, I would hope that you would still look at this and say, like, this is irresponsible government. 
people might have different ways they talk about it, but I think this is something that is just an everyone issue. And I don't really understand why we haven't done anything about it other than the fact that Congress is theater. And I'll take the back. Of course, I understand why we haven't done anything about it. It's because the government wants to keep it the way it is because it helps the government. Speaking of the government, at least one branch of it, multiple courts have ruled several times that civil forfeiture is limited by the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment, right? So there's Austin v. United States in 1993 and United States v. Bajakajan in 1998, just to name a couple. The ruling in Bajakajan stated, asset forfeiture is unconstitutional when it is, quote, grossly disproportional to the gravity of the defendant's offense, end quote. What have the courts defined as grossly disproportional? Because a lot of the examples that you've given and that I've read seem grossly disproportional. Has anyone set clear guidelines for law enforcement to abide by? And how is law enforcement applying this definition in practice, if at all? No, it has not been well-defined at all. And I'll give you an example. In North Carolina, they actually passed some pretty muscular reforms on civil forfeiture, and they took away the profit incentive. Now, when law enforcement sees assets in North Carolina, it has to go to the school system or something like that. I Don't quote me on but it's something like It's not directly funding law enforcement, like in some of these states where they take 100% of the proceeds, which is insane. But I covered a story a couple of months ago about, and this is a very nauseating story. There was a girl who had been sexually abused when she was a child. Is this the Mario Alberto Gomez Saldana case? Yes, yes. My colleague wrote about it, and then I made some stuff. Reason has a TV arm, and we made some videos about it. Basically, what happened is she was sexually abused when she was, I think, starting like five years old. Something really, really gruesome. She's 17 now. And when police were moving forward with their prosecution against him, they raided his apartment and they found some drug paraphernalia. And it was marijuana. (laughs) And they used that as justification to seize, I think it was around $70,000, that he had won in the lottery. As a reminder to your listeners civil forfeiture on the surface, we're only seizing assets that are used in furtherance of a crime. No one thought this guy was running a weed drug ring. He run the proceeds in the lottery. Okay. And this is not me saying this guy is a stand-up guy. I'm saying this because when law enforcement seized that $70,000, this girl's mom was like, because this girl is 17 now, obviously very traumatized, wanting to move on. And law enforcement told her mom, you should file for a settlement against this guy because you'll be able to get the money, sue for these lottery winnings. She did. And law enforcement, even though in North Carolina, they are not allowed to do this, what they did was they found a loophole in what's called the Equitable Sharing Program, which allows local governments to circumvent civil forfeiture reforms if they do so in partnership with the federal government. And so then the federal government allows them to disregard the local forfeiture restrictions. And so long as they share some of it with the feds, which is really perverse, but that is the law. North Carolina says, you're not supposed to do this police. And the federal government said, okay, police, you can do it as long as you give us some of the cut. So this girl rightfully gets awarded about a $70,000 settlement and the police say, oh, we can't find it. The money is gone. Honestly, the most absurd one, to your point about the police only being able to see something if it's suspected in direct connection to a crime, was actually from a recent Reason article by one of your colleagues in December, quote, following a raid in March of 2021, federal agents spent days rifling through the personal belongings stored in nearly 1,400 safe deposit boxes seized from a vault in Beverly Hills, California. The agents were tasked with cataloging the contents of the boxes, but they also seized piles of valuables, gold coins, luxury watches, family heirlooms, and stacks of cash from people who had not been charged with any crimes. And they did that despite being told by the warrant authorizing the raid that the contents of the safe deposit boxes were off limits, end quote. All in all, I think the FBI confiscated about $86 million in assets in their raid, And you did a great thread about this case on X, which involved a bunch of innocent people having their belongings confiscated nearly three years ago. You called it, I like this term, legalized larceny. You've given a lot of great examples of this being abused, but this seems to me like the most egregious because in the recent example you gave with the unfortunately victimized young woman when she was a little girl, at least you could say 
the money was in the house of the guy doing the thing. And so it's connected to him in some kind of loose way. But in this instance, with the safe deposit boxes, I wouldn't even be able to understand what the loosest link is. So can you walk us through that? Yeah. So basically what happened, and I also covered this case when I lived in LA, this happened a few years back. The Fed suspected this business called U.S. Private Vaults of engaging in criminal activity. And U.S. Private Vaults was a business in Los Angeles that offered people a secure place to store their valuables. And they suspected the owner of the business of money laundering. But none of the customers, to my knowledge at least, were suspected of any criminal wrongdoing. And like you said, the warrant specifically forbade the FBI from seizing and searching customers' deposit boxes because they were not the subject of the criminal investigation. But the FBI wanted to get around that. Because if you think about what we've been talking about with civil forfeiture and the profit incentive, what better place to steal from a private vault where people by design are putting their most valuable possessions? It was like a gold mine for them. So they inventoried the customer safety deposit boxes and seized, I think, yeah, it was $86 million. And then basically made people fight for their stuff back. And in some cases, didn't even notify them that they were seeking to forfeit the money. You have people who stored their life savings in there. One guy, his name is Joseph Ruiz. He kept $57,000 in his vault and he used it for medical treatments he was undergoing. They took it and he had to pause his medical treatments and was having trouble buying food, having to save food that he had gotten during COVID. They seized gold coins from this elderly man who he had invested in gold coins as a way to secure his retirement. And then when he tried to get his stuff back, the FBI, quote unquote, lost 63 of them, which totaled over $100,000. And then when I went to the courthouse, it was when one couple was getting their stuff back. And in their safety deposit box, they kept really personal belongings like a marriage certificate, a baptismal certificate a pilot's flight log, that kind of thing. And they had to fight for that back. It's just inconceivable. What could the FBI even want with that? Other than they just didn't want the scrutiny and the accountability. And obviously the couple, their names were Paul and Jennifer Snitko, were very emotionally drained by that. And actually the day that I went to go film them get their stuff back, the federal agents on site threatened to arrest me because I didn't have, quote unquote, a media permit, which is not a thing. The media permit is the Constitution. And I just think it's a testament to how there's such an aversion to accountability. When you have the monopoly on force and power, you're just not used to it. You're not used to having to answer to the people. But that is so perverse to me because the people fund your salaries. I know a lot of people when I say that are like, the government doesn't really work for us, but they do. We don't have any choice. I mean, like, I guess we get to elect people. When it comes to something like law enforcement, it's not like we're choosing who's a police officer, but they do work for us. The whole thing is protect and serve. How are we not employing them when we're paying their salaries through taxes? And it's just like such a fabulous example of misusing your power. The cherry on top of all of it is that a federal judge ruled that even though they violated the terms of the warrant pretty clearly that it was still legal. There are just so many immunities that we give the most powerful people who are supposed to be protecting us and standing up for our rights. And I just find that very perverse. And the FBI seizure on the U.S. private vaults is a perfect example of that because these people were totally unsuspecting, had done nothing wrong, weren't even suspected of wrongdoing, and the FBI still found a way to take their stuff. It goes to your point about the importance of keeping government agencies, I would say, especially law enforcement in this case, limited, because when you get to a certain level of power, you are more free to ignore the will of the public. And also to your point, Billy, if all of the things that we've put into place to prevent things like abuse, like warrants, hey, if you're going to be going onto this private individual's property, here's what you can and can't do which is what a warrant is supposed to protect against. You don't want to have cops go into someone's house when that person has not yet been convicted of a crime and just take everything. So warrants say, hey, you can search here. You're looking specifically for these things. But when warrants that are signed by judges are then ignored by other judges, it feels like, I don't know, like a kangaroo court style of law enforcement. Is there anything we can do? And how do we keep ourselves from becoming fatalistic? Covering this stuff, do you ever feel a sense of nihilism? 
I suppose I do to a degree. I mean, there are definitely times when I've been like, gosh, I just feel like I'm writing misery porn. (laughs) It's funny. I used to be like a big true crime person. I just thought those narratives are really interesting. And I'm like, turn that off. I don't want to be surrounded by more death and dying and misery. And when you ask me if there's anything we can do, I think it's important that people understand that we really do hold the most powerful people in this country to the lowest standard. That's not an exaggeration. The more powerful you get in government, the more immune you are from any repercussions for your wrongdoing. Police get something called qualified immunity. Prosecutors who are argued more powerful get absolute immunity. Federal law enforcement gets absolute immunity. It's just essentially impossible for victims to have recourse when their rights are violated in this way. I would like to see our lawmakers do something about it. I mean, for people who don't know what qualified immunity is, an absolute immunity, it essentially just makes it very difficult for a victim to bring a civil suit against a government official when they violate the Constitution. And people, of course, the response is always, you don't want to let that happen because then there will just be this avalanche of lawsuits against police officers and they'll be bankrupted. And that's not the case because to bring a suit, you still have to prove that they violated the Constitution and they're indemnified. So they don't even pay out of pocket. Technically, the taxpayer pays. But the reason I still think it's important is because victims really do have no recourse right now when their rights are violated or very limited recourse. And there was a brief time after the George Floyd protests in 2020 where it seemed like Congress might be interested in doing something about it. Of course, it went to the legislative graveyard that everything seems to go to. I can understand why police are disincentivized from, let's say, not using civil forfeiture or they're disincentivized from acting morally. But what is the disincentivization for a member of Congress not to tackle this? Because It's happened where police have used their power to abuse and manipulate elected officials. So why wouldn't Congress get involved? Because at the end of the day, like they could be victimized as much by law enforcement as any of us could. Yeah, police unions, one of the most powerful political constituencies in the country, I would say either the most powerful or only second. And number one then would be teachers unions. I don't think a lot of people realize how much power public unions wield because they have monopoly control over a public good. Our society is founded around kids going to school, and it is also founded around police enforcing a law and keeping order. When you have groups that essentially control access to those public goods, they just wield so much power, especially from lawmakers who are dependent in many ways on their support. When Congress was discussing qualified immunity reform, In 2020 and 2021, you saw so many law enforcement unions come out and basically, of course, trash it. And then it started getting tied to the defund the police slogan, which is just completely intellectually dishonest because qualified immunity has nothing to do with defunding the police or police budgets. They're totally unrelated. But I think that kind of gets to something that is a real problem in our politics, which is that our leaders really hope that we're all stupid. They're banking on that. They're just like, we're going to talk in the most culture war It's almost like they're talking to us like they're all on Twitter or something. And they're just hoping that we all eat that up. And I think you see that in the way that our political conversation is dumbed down. There is no reason why qualified immunity reform couldn't pass. It is very common sense. There's limited data on it, I will admit. But when you do look at the data, when Pew Research asks people, do you think that victims of police abuse where they actually violate the Constitution should be able to have recourse for that violation? I think 75% that said yes. It's not a controversial proposition. I know I write for Libertarian Magazine, but I'm really talking to everyone when I write about these things, because I think these are things that we can all understand the importance of. I feel that way with civil forfeiture reform, too. There has been a bipartisan bill to curb that equitable sharing program that I mentioned, where the feds can partner with state governments and circumvent the law, which is really crazy when you think about essentially law enforcement circumventing the law. That's the definition of perverse. And it has gotten all the support, but for some reason, it just doesn't pass. Like, why aren't you holding a vote on it? I don't understand. And I think one of the reasons they get away with that kind of thing is that it isn't covered very much in the media, which like constantly confuses me. Because I really do feel like these injustices are kind of like low-hanging fruit injustices in the sense that they are just so ridiculously, wildly offensive 
in how unjust they are. It's something that if you pulled a random person on the street and it was like, how do you feel about this woman in Detroit who lost two of her cars when she was never suspected of a crime and it was only her baby daddy who was suspected of a crime, but even he wasn't arrested? What do you think? I think everyone would be like, what? That's wrong. You know, Republican, Democrat, Green Party, whatever you are. I just think that's something that we can all be like, yeah, that's not great. And it still just stalls. And I think it's an indictment on the political theater that is Congress and how so many of our elected officials, honestly, on the right and the left, care more about flamboyantly performing during congressional hearings when they don't even know the material and they're asking about how to end FENSTA than they do actually curbing abuse and passing legislation that would help people. You asked me if I lend myself to nihilism, and I think that answer that I just gave you, that rant, would seem to say yes. So I try to keep the faith. A short aside on public unions. I'm hot and cold on private unions. I work in the entertainment industry, so I can see both their functionality and their abuses. But in an instance like with the WGA strikes, my wife is a WGA writer and they were getting screwed. The strike was justified in that regard, and they wouldn't have been able to harness the kind of collective action required if those unions did not exist because the studios are simply too powerful. So I think in the private sphere, there can be a place for unions, at least theoretically, and in some cases, it really can bring about good. But private unions is an attempt to balance power because both the private company and the private unions have to reach a middle ground because neither of them can really overpower the other. They have to negotiate to reach a settlement that both of them agree on. There's a little bit of give and take. The problem with a public union, and I'm sure you share the sentiment, Billy, is that the power of the union is absolute over the elected official because if the public union does not get what they want with one elected official, they can just campaign for that official to get removed from office in the next election and install one that will agree to their terms. It would be like if a private union could get all of the leadership of Walmart fired and then install new leadership so that they get what they want, which, you know, if you don't like Walmart, I'm sure you'd be a fan of that. But it's a fundamental imbalance that can't be rectified when, as you said, the public union has a monopoly over a very vital good. Right. One of the things I've written about over the years is such a vociferous objection to public unions, both police unions and teachers unions. Like I said, I think you have to apply your principles consistently. And the principle there is that you cannot weaponize public good. Private unions, I think, are a an expression of free speech. I don't know that I would join one because honestly, I think a lot of times they advocate in ways that ends up hurting the people it's supposed to help. Like with you see some of these news organizations, for instance, these unions will advocate for higher salaries and they're like, well, that means we'll have to lay off the Lotus people on the totem pole. And it's like, okay, I guess it's up to the individual to decide if that was more cost than benefit or more benefit than cost. And that's a personal decision. So I certainly think that that is an example of expressing, you know, your first right to associate in whatever way you want. I don't know that I would join one, but I don't have the ire for them like I do public. I honestly think public unions should be illegal. I don't think you should be able to weaponize a public good that we are all forced to pay for. It's not like we can opt out because if you do, you go to federal prison. I think that the way in which those two advocacy groups, teachers unions and police unions, have come to essentially control a lot of politics in this country is really wrong. To end on a hopeful note, people who've either just learned about civil forfeiture or who have known about it for a while or things like qualified immunity, what can they do? Is the only solution just to go to the ballot box and try and find politicians to elect who take strong stances on this? At what angle can we attack this problem from? And when it seems like from our discussion that it just feels so big, so overwhelming, bleeding into every aspect of life from judges to police to elected officials, where do people even start if they want to try and bring about reform? Yeah, so I think like so many issues, a lot of this is local. I talked about the federal government's equitable sharing program and the federal government, like with the FBI case, the federal government is one of the entities that gets to keep 95 to 100 percent of the proceeds. So, of course, it is a problem at the federal level, but most civil forfeiture is going to happen at the state level where they control those reforms. And I think this might sound really basic, but I think if more people were vocal about this, there would be more pressure for change. Part of that is a media problem. I don't really understand why it's only a few of us in the national press who write about this consistently, because it is such a ripe area for discussion and reform. But I think if more people were talking about it, especially at the local level, whether it's the local press or whether it's pounding your local representatives, that's where a lot of the change is going to happen. And I think that they're able to get away with not changing much. Because when I ask even some of my friends who know the work I do, I'm like, do you know what civil forfeiture is? They're like, mm, I don't know. 
it's not something that's in the lexicon or that we talk about a lot because we're so focused on talking about what Trump crazy thing he said on Truth Social or whatever. You know, that's like the stuff that fills the airways, especially in the national press, isn't policy driven because policy pours people. And I don't say that in any critical way. Media is a business model. A lot of outlets are focused on what they think their readers will engage with. And that's often not these policy debates. But I would like to think that as the public, especially at the local level, there is a lot of power to be had in urging your representative to say, I know that this is happening, so let's fix it. I think it's a slow process, but hopefully it's something that I would like to see the needle move on. And I think the local reporters, like these stories are really rich. Go find them. Billy, you're shining a light on issues and cases that, as you said earlier, should be getting national attention night after night if we lived in a just society until these issues were rectified. I'm going to link to your profile on Reason.com so that everyone can go read the stories you write about, because this is dipping a toe in the water of what goes on on a daily basis in our country. It's just a gross injustice. It's often comically absurd. You read some of these stories and you laugh so you don't cry. A lot of the abuse from the people that have sworn to protect us and the way that they use their power to destroy people's lives, it's evil. And so I want to just thank you personally as a fan of your work for so doggedly covering issues of police abuse, of government overreach and corruption. I think it's really important work. And I'm glad that our audience today has gotten a chance to get to know your work better if they're unfamiliar with it. So, Billy, thank you for making the time today. It means a lot to me. Thank you. I so appreciate that. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or sharing one of your favorite episodes with a friend or family member or a coworker or that barista down the street who always knows your drink order, because those two small actions have outsized impact and will help the show increase its listenership expand its reach, and continue to attract engaging guests to talk about fascinating topics. But it needs to be said, you just being a listener is already a big deal. So thank you.